0: The book of Acts. As I said, we're going to be in here for about 35 weeks or so, give or take. Towards the end of last year, the elders asked me uh, to preach a sermon series on the local church, and I thought instead of doing a topical series on the local church, why not let us just preach? The Book of Acts, going slowly at the start and then speeding up as we go along, and we're calling the series uh, through all twenty-eight chapters of Acts, calling it Gospel, Church, and Kingdom, because those are three of the main big themes in this book. It is a it is a book the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a book about the Holy Spirit, it is a book about the local church, and it is a book about the Kingdom of God. cover all of these uh, themes. So what we're going to do, we're going to spend our time mostly in another book, believe it or not, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read the, the first five verses, which make a introduction to Acts. We're going to look at them. We're gonna look at a couple of the big themes that come across this book. I'm endeavoring to do my absolute best to not just turn this into a lecture, but it is a sermon. But along with that, we do need to see what's the big picture? What's going on in this book? Why should we bother in two thousand seventeen going through this book? Why should we do that? What's in it for us? We'll see all of that, and I hope your appetite will be uh, whetted a little bit, and you'll be keen for more. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up. After holy spirit not many days from now this is god's word you notice the start of acts the next in verse one it says in the first book of theophilus the first book is referring to something else he's not referring to the acts he's referring to something else and that second that first book means that Acts is actually the second book. It is the second volume. And we need to really go back to the first book to find the reason for writing. The reason why the author has written Acts. What is it? What is that first book that will give us the big picture? Some of you are nodding your head, some of you are perhaps confused with where I'm going with this. What is the first book that the author is referring to? That first book is Luke's gospel. It is Luke's gospel. Luke and Acts together form one whole unit. And it is if Acts is the second part of this volume. It is the second book. Luke is the first and Acts is the second book. And that means that the introduction for Acts as a whole is actually found way back in Luke chapter 1. So let's turn there. Please go to Luke chapter 1. And that gives us the the big picture overview of what is being written here in Acts. Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That right there in Luke chapter 1 is actually the introduction for Luke and Acts as a whole. And from that, from this, we can pull some conclusions about the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are therefore written by Luke. Luke wrote Acts. And Luke is Widely understood to be the only writer in the New Testament who was not a Jew. That's a big deal. Luke was very likely a Greek. And in Colossians, we're told by Paul that this Luke was a doctor. They said he's a physician. Luke is a Greek doctor, and he writes the book of Acts. And between Luke and Acts we have approximately 25% we've got a whole quarter of the new testament written by this guy luke so we know he's a greek we know he's actor and we know also that he is a companion of the apostle paul and in acts he frequently uses words like we or us when he is describing uh, the events that are taking place. He was, a, there is an eyewitness for many of the events that he is describing, especially in the latter part of the book of Acts. And from verse, uh, verse three of Luke's introduction, We can see his reason for writing. It says, To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You might have certainty about the things that you have been taught. Luke's job is to write an orderly account an orderly account. Luke is a historian, and he wishes to write an orderly historical account in two volumes. In Luke's Gospel, which is most well known to many of us, he writes a historical account of the ministry of Jesus on earth. That's what Luke's Gospel is about. And then in Acts, the shift is, he writes a historical account of the ministry of Jesus from heaven through the Holy Spirit, and the Apostles. So both of them are about Jesus, but one is the ministry of Jesus on earth, and the one is the ministry of Jesus from heaven, through the Holy Spirit, and the Apostles. And that gives us some help on what we can actually call the book of Acts. I was talking to Andrew uh, this morning about that very subject. This volume called Acts came to be known as just, Just Acts, from the Greek word praxis. And some of your Bibles will say in the introduction and the big heading, they'll say the Acts of the Apostles. Because it is a story about the 12 apostles of Jesus and the things that they did. But others argue that no, the big player is actually the Holy Spirit and it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Who's right? I think we can meet in the middle. And many people have suggested that this book should actually be called The Acts of the Apostles Through the Holy Spirit. And I agree. I I agree with that. I think that accurately summarizes what's happening here. The Acts of the Apostles Through the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends after his resurrection from the dead. And Acts begins, we see this in Acts chapter 1, Acts begins with the apostles waiting for the Holy Spirit so that the church can be formed, so that the kingdom of God can spread from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's a story about rapid advancement from Jerusalem outwards. And Luke says that this orderly account of these events is written for a man called Theophilus. We'll notice that both in the introduction to Acts and the introduction to Luke, the name Theophilus. We don't know much about him, but it seems like he was either a Greek or a Roman person. He's either a believer in Jesus Christ or someone who's very interested in in Jesus. And he commissions Luke to write an orderly historical account of Jesus' ministry on earth and the early church. He's probably a very wealthy man, and he uses his wealth for a good purpose to have Luke research and write these two two volumes. And thanks to Theophilus' generosity, we now have twenty-five percent of the New Testament, and it is incredibly well-researched, incredibly well-researched. The more I study Acts, the more amazed I am. The more I read even secular commentators talking about Acts, they all speak highly of the history contained within Acts. Acts contains 30 years of church history that is found nowhere else. That's important. The first seven chapters are centered in Jerusalem, and the big event there is where the church was formed in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. From there, in chapters 8 to 12, we have the ministry to Judea and to Samaria, and the key character in that is the Apostle Peter. We learn a lot of things about Peter and his ministry, specifically to, to Jews and Gentiles and then from 13 to 28 28 chapters in total we have a fine historical account of the apostle paul's three main missionary journeys to the gentile nations without acts we would have letters like galatians Ephesians, philippians first and second thessalonians first corinthians we'd have those letters We'd have those letters to those churches, but without Acts, we wouldn't know how is it those churches came to be formed. Those are actually very, very important things. We wouldn't have a clue about how the gospel spread to those regions because the gospels end in Jerusalem. How is it that all of a sudden in Asia and Macedonia and all these places, there are churches? So Acts 13 to 28 tells us About that rapid spread. So we have 30 years of church history. From about AD 30 to around around about AD 62. 30 years of church history. Where the world was completely turned upside down. How has Luke been able to write this orderly account? What means has he been given? We've seen that he's been funded by theophilus so he's got money he's a companion of paul so to some of the events in the book of acts he's an eyewitness that's and then he interviews people it's a it's a mistake to assume that much of much of the bible was written by people just sitting there at a desk waiting for the holy spirit to tell them exactly what to write and just writing via via divine osmosis that's not what happened. Luke is a good historian. He interviews people. In chapter 21, Paul's in prison for a couple of years in Jerusalem and this gave Luke Luke was with him and it gave Luke ample time to travel around Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. He goes to all those places. He interviews people like a good journalist and historian would. And I want to I want to make a point on how well-written Acts actually is. It was written incredibly carefully. Incredibly carefully. A man by the name of Sir William Ramsay. he's famous enough to have a Wikipedia page. Uh, you can look him up. He was a historian in the 1800s, and he was incredibly prejudiced against the accuracy of the book of Acts. He thought it was fables. He wrote a secular, sort of historical book on St. Paul the Traveler and the Roman citizen in 1895. And he wrote that after doing his own research, he was able to give reasons, and I quote, for placing the author of Acts among the historians of the first rank. He calls Luke a first rank historian. Seventy years later in the nineteen sixties was a man by the name of A. N. Sherwin White. He was a professional Greco Roman historian who was a fellow in the history department at Oxford University. Okay? Kind of a big deal in that field. He had this to say. The historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, the details are precise and correct. One walks the streets and marketplaces, the theaters and assemblies of 1st century Ephesus or Thessalonica, Corinth or Philippi with the author of Acts. The great men of the state, the magistrates, the mob and the mob leader are all there. As documents, these narratives belong to the same historical series as the record of provincial and imperial trials and epigraphical and literary sources of the 1st and early 2nd sec- centuries A.D., end quote. What he's saying is, you're getting an accurate picture of the 1st and 2nd... You're getting an accurate picture of the 1st century uh, in this book. And he says, you can compare the accuracy of this, to the Roman records of 1st and 2nd century trials. He's saying, you can trust this. This is good history. And why do I bother to, to hone in on that point? If you're a Christian, perhaps you're thinking, so what? It's in the Bible, I trust it. But many people don't. Because Acts is historical narrative about Jesus, about the church, about mission, if it's not true, then spending 35 or more Sunday mornings studying it is a complete waste of our time. You don't deal with historical narrative if it's not true. It's a complete waste of time. But we need to realize that we're not dealing with fairy tales here. We're dealing with very well researched history. And that's important for us, especially when we start to see some of the miraculous events that are taking place. Now, maybe you're wondering again why bother with history? Who cares? Who cares? The whole concept of learning from history is not very popular in this day and age, especially my generation and below. There seems to be a weird polarizing temptation towards the book of Acts in the church because of this. Some people will assume that history and Christianity have been on a constant journey of progress, Okay, Things are always getting better and better throughout history, and therefore studying Acts is largely a complete waste of time. Why bother looking at the early church? Some people will dismiss the early church as primitive, and they'll say that the early church used methods that in no way could work today. Other people, however, will, will swing to the complete opposite extreme, They'll be tempted to view Acts with rose-colored glasses, nostalgia, and demand that we get the church back to Acts chapter 2. That it was the high point. Okay. What I'm saying is, we're going to have two temptations. We're either going to write it off as primitive and say, who cares about history? Or we're going to go to the other side and say, everything was so much better then, we need to get back to that. We're going to miss those two extremes. And on this point, I've got some quotes for you. On this point, the late John Stott writes, and I think it's also helpful for us as we study Acts. He says, It has, in fact, been a salutary exercise for the Christian church of every century to compare itself with the church of the first and to seek to recapture something of its confidence, enthusiasm, vision, and power. Good thing. At the same time, we must be realistic. There is a danger lest we romanticize the early church, speaking of it with bated breath as if it has no blemishes. For then we shall miss the rivalries, the hypocrisies, the immoralities and the heresies which troubled the church then as now. Nevertheless, one thing is certain, Christ's church had been overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit who thrust it out into the world to witness, end quote. So that's important. That is very, very important. We need to be realistic while still seeking to recapture something of the confidence of the early church. And one thing we do need to realize is this is not just history, it is also theology. It is also theology, the study of God and Scripture. It's in the Bible, so therefore it can be preached, it can be proclaimed. I am able to stand up here and proclaim the truths of God's words rather than just lecturing about a historical document. That's important too. Luke writes about salvation, which we call soteriology. Salvation is according to God's plan. Jesus bestows salvation on sinners, and it is offered to all people, not just Jews. It is offered to all people. Luke writes about the Holy Spirit, which we call pneumatology. And it is only because the Holy Spirit, the third the Trinity, that the salvation and the church are made possible. The Holy Spirit is a huge character in the book of Acts. Luke writes about the church, ecclesiology. The church is established in Acts as a redeemed people from all nations. And Luke also writes about the doctrine of the end times. Believe it or not, the doctrines of the end times is not just contained in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. They're also found in places like the book of Acts. Acts sets up the events of the of this book as being the fulfillment of God's redemption plan from right back at the start of the Old Testament. And he says that from the cross to the second coming of Christ is the last days. Luke tells us that the kingdom of God has entered into human history and will continue to grow until Christ returns. We'll look next week specifically at what the book says about the kingdom of God so therefore, this is not just a book of history, it's not just a book of theology, we can call it a book of salvation history. And as I bring this to a close, I hope we all have something of an understanding of what we're getting into in the book of Acts. I hope you're interested, I hope you have some appetite to, to go through what is found in this remarkable book. But I want to close with this. At the end of Luke's gospel, Luke gives the commission to the apostles. The great commission is not just found in Matthew's at the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 28. He also gives the commission in Luke. These apostles are confused, they're fearful, some like Peter had denied Jesus. All of them at the cross had deserted Jesus. If you're looking for some men, are you looking for a gathering of men to be bold and fearless and who can go out and turn the world upside down? Those do not seem to be the men you would choose. They were very confused. They did not know what was happening. They were asking themselves, why is it that Jesus had to die? They don't get it. They don't get it. And even as they came to believe that Jesus had risen from the grave, they were still confused. They did not know what was going on. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, the end of Luke's Gospel, I'm going to read a few verses from there. In his commission, he says from verse 45 of Luke chapter 24. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That is what Luke's Gospel finishes with. And remember, Luke and Acts are one big unit. That provides the starting point for the book of Acts. In Acts 1.3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Jesus appeared to them alive. He ate with them. He showed them his wounds. He explained to them what was happening. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus spends a grand total of 40 days on the earth mostly with his disciples, after he rises again. And something remarkable happens in those 40 days. Those men are transformed, their minds are opened, and they come to understand what is actually going on. How is it that the church grew with those men at the helm? And it is because that ordinary group of people began to understand what Jesus was about. They began to understand how the whole of human history had been coming forward to this moment at the start of Acts. And they received the Holy Spirit in power to give them the confidence and the guarantee of success that people would be saved, that the church would be formed, that the kingdom would go ahead. Jesus' death and resurrection was according to the plan of God to forgive sinners. They came to understand that. That salvation in Jesus' name needed to be proclaimed. That men and women might repent of their sins and believe in the name of Jesus. That God, the Holy Spirit, would guarantee that the proclamation of Jesus would not be a waste of time. But instead it would form the church and bring about the growth of God's kingdom on this earth. They came to understand that. They came to understand that they had God's backing and therefore there would be success. What am I saying then? Many of us attempted to read the end of Luke's gospel, to read the end of Matthew's gospel, to read the Great Commission and then go... I wonder what we should do with this now. What does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to teach them all things? What does it mean to baptize them? Why? We feel like we are given the Great Commission and then we are just left to our own devices. Well, the book of Acts is actually very helpful in this regard because Acts is, as the first work of church history, it shows us the response of the apostles to the Commission. And that is huge. What does it mean to fulfill the Great Commission? Well, the book of Acts shows us. And that's why I think it is incredibly beneficial for us. It will be very profitable for us to study this book. Let's pray.